0: A mother of two little boys wrote to Ann Landers and said this, "'Dear Ann Landers, it happened again today. "'My two sons and I were in a shopping mall, "'and a total stranger felt the need to comment on the fact "'that my boys didn't look anything alike. "'Apparently, my six-year-old decided "'it was time he explained the difference. "'I'm adopted!' He said, that's when you have the same family, but not the same face. (laughs) And I love how secure this little guy is about the fact that he has been adopted. He knew his mommy and daddy loved him. And today we begin a new series through the book of Ephesians. And I've titled the sermon today, Adopted and Being Transformed. We got that up there yet? There we go. And uh, I'm grateful to Pastor Tim and Kelly who have allowed me to do the intro sermon for our series through Ephesians. So today you're going to get an overview of the entire book, The Big Idea. Ephesians begins with adoption into the family of God and then Paul describes the amazing benefits we have in Christ. Then he goes on to speak about the life transformation that happens to someone who is saved by grace. So if you got your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. And just keep them out because we're going to be going through the whole book today. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, We welcome you. We are glad you are here. I do have to warn you, though. Today, you will be reading someone else's mail. Because the book of Ephesians was written to Christians. And my hope for you is that you learn about the glorious inheritance that God has for his adopted children. And that you will long to be in the family of God. And that someday, maybe today, you too will pay, place your faith in Jesus Christ. Why don't we stand for a responsive reading through the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1. And I have put the references on the screen, but you don't need to read the references, just read the words. I will be the leader, and you will be the congregation. We know our roles. Okay. Who wrote the book of Ephesians? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. No, 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 verse 1. That's just for here. Okay. Okay. Who was the book written to? No, no, no. <laughs> what does the Apostle Paul wish for the Ephesian church? Praise to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord be praised. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heaven and Continue. Why did he choose us? In love he predestined us for an to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Continue. According to the purpose of his will, the praise of his glorious grace, through which he has blessed us in the world. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for the great inheritance we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, you have lavished your love on us your blessings. You chose us before the foundation of the world, and you have given us an incredible inheritance, mercy and grace and eternal life. Our names are in your book, and we are adopted children in the family of God, and we have much to be grateful for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So begins the book of Ephesians, Ephesians was written to people living in the church age. It was written to people who lived after the first coming of Christ, but who were waiting for the second coming of Jesus, just like us. Now, they just happened to be at the beginning of the church age, and we presumably are at the end of the church age. He hasn't given us a date yet. But they and we live in the same period of redemption history. So Ephesians is very applicable to our lives. I would argue that it is the most applicable book in the Bible to Redemption Hill Church. Ephesians is the 10th book of the New Testament. It has six chapters. It was written between 60 and 62 AD, about 30 years after Pentecost. While Paul was on house arrest in Rome, and thus Ephesians is one of the prison epistles, along with Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So Paul was incarcerated when he wrote these books. He was, as he says in Ephesians 3.1, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The book of Colossians, which is also a prison epistle, is very similar to Ephesians. You might call it a mini Ephesians. So likely Ephesians and Colossians were written about the same time. Ephesians is referred to as a general epistle. It was written to a broader audience than just the Ephesians. Also, it's called a circular epistle because it was Paul expected for this epistle, this letter, to be, written, to be carried to lots of different churches and read to these other churches. So it's called a general epistle for a few reasons. Number one, Ephesians is different than most of Paul's other epistles in that it lacks any references to specific people and incidences. Paul only refers to one other person, Tychicus, and he's the guy that's delivering the letter. Whereas all of Paul's other epistles are very personal. He he mentions a lot of people, and I think in Romans chapter 16, he mentions about 35 different people. Like, say hi to this person and that person, and oh, this is such a wonderful lady over here, and da-da-da-da. But in Ephesians, he basically mentions nobody. He also doesn't deal with any specific problems. If you think about you know other books in the Bible, you know, like Corinthians, Paul's dealing with the unity problem and some sexual immorality issues in the church. But uh, commentators have looked, scholars have looked through Ephesians and they're like, "What is the problem he's dealing with?" And there isn't one. And older man in older manuscripts of Ephesians, we have actually two different introductions. In your Bibles, in Ephesians one verse one, It says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. But there are all some other older, old manuscripts which actually have no reference to the book of Ephesus, the book of reference to Ephesus. And in those documents, verse one reads, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. There's one old version of the book that actually calls it the epistle to the Laodiceans. Um, And so this book was actually written for multiple churches. It doesn't deal with any specific problems. So if you could say to Paul, Paul, I want you to write one book that's not just for this particular church, but that all churches could apply. And if you could do that, what would you say? And we have that in the book of Ephesians. The city of Ephesus is the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And there's a map in your bulletin. If you kind of look in there, you'll see the map. You can see where Ephesus is. Ephesus was the third most prominent city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Athens. You've heard the saying, all roads lead to... Rome. But there was another saying, all roads lead through Ephesus. Ephesus housed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Diana, which housed the statue of the goddess Diana. Diana is the Greek name for the goddess. The Roman name was Artemis. This was a grotesque multi-breasted statue. And uh, you can look it up on Google if you want. Uh, Guys, don't worry, it won't stumble you. Um, The people of Ephesus saw their city as the nurturer of the goddess most glorious. Paul may have been alluding to this in Ephesians 5 verse 29, where it says that Christ nourishes his church. For the pagan Ephesians, they had to nourish and care for their goddess. But for Christians, our God nourishes us. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than in any other city he visited, with the possible exception of Rome, where he was on house arrest. He stayed in Ephesus for about two to three years on his third missionary journey. In Acts 19, verse 10, we see that Ephesus had become the center for evangelism in Asia Minor. It was headquarters for the gospel in that area. Paul had affectionate ties with the people there. And you see in his farewell address to the Ephesians, the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, uh, that the men are embracing Paul. They're weeping over him. They're kissing his neck as they're saying their goodbyes. When Paul first went to share the gospel in Ephesus, he had a conflict with the trade industry, which centered around the worship of the goddess Diana. You can see that story in Acts 19. And it might be really good as we enter into Ephesians this week to read, here's your homework, to read uh, Acts 19 and 20. And then you can start reading through the book of Ephesians. Paul encouraged people to turn away from the occult. So if you were in Ephesus and you became a Christian and you're still selling little Diana statues on the side, Paul would say, don't do that. Paul told them to expose the deeds of darkness in Ephesians chapter 5. He said that we are at war against evil in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, Question for you. How many books of the Bible did Paul write? Bible scholars, any guesses, kids? You want know, to jump in? Here, are 10, 16. We're, we're in the ballpark. Actually, zero. Paul never wrote a book. He wrote 13 epistles, or uh, 14 if you want to attribute the book of Hebrews to Paul. How many of you think Paul wrote Hebrews? Anyone here? Some people? Yeah, it, I mean, it's debated. We, we don't really know, but a lot of, some people say Paul. So Ephesians is not a book. And, and you have to remember that when you read through the book of Ephesians. Yeah, I mean, think about how you would be if you sat down to write a book versus if you sat down to write a letter. It's a very different style of writing. It's a very different writing process. Um, so, <clears throat> let's see. In this letter, Paul is writing to the Christians in Ephesus and in Asia Minor. And he's not laying out events. He's writing to to remind them of gospel truths remind them about christ and to speak into their lives and to encourage them to become more like christ now i'm going to give you a simple outline of the book of ephesians some might argue that i have made it too simple but i think this outline will be very helpful for you chapter one through three is the theological section And some of you are saying, oh, let me add it. And others of you are going, oh, I think I'll skip that part. But I don't want you to do that. I want you to read through the whole book. So 1 through 3, Theological, chapter 4 through 6 is the practical section. It was said of Jonathan Edwards, his theology was all application. And his application was all theology. So in the theological section, Paul deals with adoption, election, Predestination, redemption, grace, faith, good works, our inheritance, and the unsearchable riches of Christ. Pastor Milton Vincent, he says, reading the book of Ephesians is like checking your bank account. You're checking the balance and you open up your bank account and you're like, whoa, I didn't realize there was that much in there. Maybe that hasn't happened to you recently, but when you open Ephesians, it's going to happen to you. Now, in the practical section, Paul addresses unity in the church, walking in holiness, marriage, parenting, work, spiritual warfare, and prayer. And as we go through the theology of chapters 1 through 3, you'll find that the knowledge of God has the power to transform your life. And as we go through the practical section, chapters 4 through 6, you will find that even this practical instruction is based on the foundation of the theology in the first three chapters. I would argue that the key verse of the entire book is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. Let's read it together. Ready? Go. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You could call this the thesis statement of Ephesians. And notice first is the theology. God saved us by grace through faith, and that parallels chapters 1 through 3. Next is the practical. He saved us so that we go on to do good works, good works that he has prepared in advance for us. So that's the big idea. Now we're going to walk through the book of Ephesians, each of the sections of the book, and along the way I'm going to point out key passages that stick out to me from the book. Now, if I don't hit your favorite verse in Ephesians, please pardon me, because this book is full of good stuff, and we don't want to be here three hours this morning. Uh, also, I'm going to be pointing out 12 keywords. Those are in your bulletin. They're all out there. I, I thought about mixing up the letters for you, but I just spelled them regularly. And those, those 12 words cover main themes from the book. So let's jump into chapter one. And the first theme is adoption. And adoption, election, predestination, those three go very well together. They go hand in hand. And I'm going to begin with the end of verse four. In love, he predestined us. Now, there's some debate as to whether, you know, Kelly and I were talking about that this morning. Some debate as to whether in love should go with verse 4 or verse 5. I think it goes with verse 5. He predestined us out of love. So in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This book is for the adopted. We have been chosen before the foundation of the world, as verse 4 says. We have been predestined for adoption into God's family. A nine-year-old girl told Dr. Laura on the radio, she said, I want to find my real parents. And Dr. Laura responded, Your real parents are the ones who have loved you and raised you these nine years of your life. A lot of babies come into this world by accident, she continues, and oops, but you were not a mistake. Your parents chose to have you. It's a very special thing to be adopted. And I I think of adoption stories, and I've heard where parents went to a great deal of effort, expense, and even emotional agony in securing the adoption of their child. And it reminds me of the great expense that our father went through to secure our adoption into his family. And I think God would say to you this morning, you were not a mistake. I chose you to be mine. I have adopted you into my family. You are my child. So first theme is adoption. The next theme is grace. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Let me say one thing real quick about that phrase, in him. Uh, You see that all over the book of Ephesians. In him, in Christ, in the Lord. I mean, it is everywhere throughout this book. And so keep an eye out for that. Because, again, Ephesians is talking to people who are in Christ. And all of these moral commands that Paul gives you are moral commands that you can only fulfill as you are walking in the Spirit and living in Christ. So in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. G-R-A-C-E, maybe you know the acronym, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. Mercy is when you don't get the punishment you deserve. Grace is when you get rewards and blessings that you don't deserve. So kids, imagine that you got in trouble because you were bad, And you were about to get a spanking, and you didn't get the spanking, and instead you got ice cream. That's mercy and grace. Mercy is you didn't get the spanking. Grace is you got the ice cream. We deserve punishment, but instead we get blessings. We deserve wrath, but instead we get grace. The next uh, theme is knowledge. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That you may know, that you may know it in your knower, what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And notice these words, wisdom, revelation, knowledge, enlightened, know. We live in a culture that a lot of times wants to reject knowledge and embrace feelings. The Bible embraces both. God wants you to know some things. And I think sometimes we dismiss the importance of knowledge. And yes, there is a worldly knowledge that puffs up, but there's also a godly revelation that the Lord has for us. And regarding that knowledge, I would say the more the better. God has served us up a feast Of knowledge in his word. So do not hold back in some misguided attempt at humility. No, 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 no. Eat up. Now, moving into chapter two, the next theme is unity. God wants his people to be unified, specifically Jewish and Gentile believers. Chapter two, beginning in verse 13. But now in Christ, there it is, in Christ, again, in Christ, Jesus, you, you Gentiles, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Jew and Gentile, now one new man, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So there was Jew and Gentile, but now we are one in Christ, We are one united body under the headship of Jesus. And as a Gentile Christian, I am so grateful that Christ has destroyed the dividing wall and he has opened the door to us. We can get on the ark. He could have just limited salvation to the Jews, but he didn't. He let us in. As Romans says, we are the unnatural branches, but God has graciously grafted us in to the tree. He has given the Samaritan woman a drink from the living water. He has called us, who are Gentile dogs, to sit at his table that we might eat of the bread of life. In Christ, he has made Jew and Gentile one. Now, moving into chapter 3, we have the theme of strength. And you are going to see this again all throughout the book of Ephesians. Strength, power, edification. God wants to give you strength. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So let's break that down. So what is God giving us? Strength and power. From where? It's through his spirit. What's being changed? He says your inner being. God wants to empower you on the inside so that you will have strength to live like Jesus on the outside. In our society, we try to strengthen people by giving them nicer surroundings, better health, more finances, parks and playgrounds. We work from the outside in, but God starts with our inner being and strengthens us. From the inside out. And you know, often when we're trying to solve our problems in life, we tend to focus on the outside. I think we need to get into alignment with the will of God and focus on what he's trying to do on the inside. He fills us with Christ. He fills us with his truth, his goodness, his glory, his love, and he transforms our lives. The next theme is fullness. God wants to fill you up, to give you his fullness. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You ever sit down to dinner and you think, oh boy, I hope there's more to eat than that. And then your wife opens up the oven and amazing smells fill the room. You fill your plate, you eat, and you are satisfied God wants to fill you with his fullness. And and my hope this morning, as we go through Ephesians, that he's filling you up right now. He wants to give you fullness of joy, fullness of peace and satisfaction. He came to give us life, and that more abundantly. He came to fill us up with his goodness, his love, his life, and his Holy Spirit, Now we move into chapter four and we have the theme of maturity. Let me say this. You are supposed to grow up. You're not supposed to be a baby Christian forever. Ephesians four, beginning in verse 11, and he gave the apostles. Now look at all these people he gave to help you grow up. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You know, we say Pastor Tim's in the ministry. We are all in the ministry. And Pastor Tim is building us up so that we can do the ministry that God has given us. For building up the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning. By craftiness in deceitful schemes. Do you know why they make those desks in elementary school so small? So you won't fit in them when you're 20 years old. (laughs) Jim Rohn says it this way. Life expects us to make a reasonable amount of progress in a reasonable amount of time. And that's why they make those second grade chairs so small. God expects progress. God wants you to grow up spiritually. Why did God give us all these gifted leaders? To build us up, to equip us, that we might grow to maturity. And why is maturity so important? For a couple reasons. And Paul states them both in that text. Number one is unity in the church. So many churches are ripped apart because they're full of immature Christians Also, because God doesn't want us to be thrown about by every new idea, by the latest Facebook comment or the newest YouTube video. He wants us stable in Christ and growing to greater and greater maturity. In our day and age, we worship youth. We sing songs like Forever Young. We repeat the mantra of Peter Pan. I won't grow up, never going to go to school, never going to be a man. And maybe these are the two words you need to take home today. Grow up. (laughs) Become a mature man, a mature woman of God. We need maturity in the church. Now, moving into chapter 5, we have the theme of marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 33, is the most famous passage in the Bible on marriage, probably the most famous text in the world on the topic. Your marriage matters because your marriage is meant to preach the gospel. Ephesians 5, beginning verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. Notice it doesn't say every woman is supposed to submit to every man. No, to your own husband, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So, ladies, to what extent do you submit to your husband? Paul says, as to Christ. So however you should submit to Jesus, that's how Paul says you should submit to and obey your husband. Now, if that's not clear enough, Paul goes on to say wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, obviously, this is with the exception of your husband asking you to sin. In that case, you would be forced to rebel against him, because you have a higher authority than your husband, which is Jesus Christ himself. Now, ladies, this is a very tall order. I remember talking to my sister when she was single, and I was like, Becky, you better be careful who you marry if you have to follow this passage. Um, But a very tall order, especially if you're married, if you're like my wife and you're married to a guy that's not that great. A guy... A guy who's a sinner, who screws up a lot. So, okay, so you're okay. So what does the husband have to do? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Now I can hear the protest, ladies. I have to submit to him in everything, and he's just got to be a nice guy? Let's keep reading. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And notice it keeps going back to Jesus. How did Jesus love his church? He gave himself up for her on the cross. Toward what end? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. He's making his bride beautiful for the wedding day without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, husbands, Paul is not just saying she gets to choose the restaurant or she gets the bigger scoop of ice cream. He's saying that in your efforts to love her, you must be willing to face humiliation, suffering, and even death. Now, if you get to the third one, then you're off the hook. (laughs) Now, you say, well, yeah, but what if she's totally disrespectful? She is making my life miserable. That's the cross, bro. (laughs) But you don't know my wife. She rips me to shreds with her words. She's an addict. She's bipolar. My wife is crazy. Humiliation. Humiliation suffering, and death. And yes, it's tough. Welcome to marriage. Okay, I gotta love my wife. Now, what is the goal of this love? You are to love your wife toward that end of making her holy and beautiful. To sanctify her and cleanse her with the word. When's the last time you read the scriptures with your wife? I got really convicted on that one. Love her in an effort to achieve that goal. You know, people say, happy wife, happy life. And and I'm not totally opposed to that. But that is not the ultimate end of your love. Your goal is not just to make your wife happy to pacify her so that you can have a happy life, so that you can skip out and go golfing or fishing or whatever you like to do. Your goal should be to lavish her with the love of God and the glories of his gospel toward that end of God using you to make her more like Jesus. God chose you, men, to do that. And in your efforts to do that, she might actually get upset with you before she gets happy. Is that okay? So wives submit in respect, husbands sacrificially love, and we do so because of Christ. Look at verse 32. This mystery is profound, this marriage mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, before you just run to theology and forget the practical, Paul says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And notice it doesn't say that she speaks respectfully to her, ch- her husband. Respect starts in the heart. starts in the mind. Not only, you're not supposed to just speak respectfully to your husband, you are to respect him. Think about his good qualities encourage him, build him up, yes, speak, speak them to him, but it let it come from a heart and a mind that is thinking about his good qualities on a regular basis and not thinking about his bad qualities all the time. So Paul makes clear that the, pur- pur- the purpose of marriage is to help us to understand Christ and his relationship to the church. And kids, uh, I was thinking this morning as I was just praying, I was like, I am so grateful that you guys get to hear this now. I never learned this until I was in my 20s. And man, I made a lot of mistakes because I didn't know what Paul says about marriage. Your marriage is saying something about the gospel. Your marriage is saying something about Christ As a husband and about the church as a bride. Wives, you are either speaking truth or lies about how the church is supposed to treat Jesus. Husbands, you are either speaking truth or lies about Jesus in how you treat your wives. Now, men, you say, we're staying together for the kids. Well, that's nice. How about you stay together for Jesus? How about you be faithful to your spouse because your love and your faithfulness to to your wife says something about Jesus' love and his faithfulness to his bride, the church. Next theme is parenting. So this takes us into chapter six. And I told you that Paul gets very practical. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, kids, there's, this is one of the few times in Scripture where God speaks specifically to you, kids. And when he speaks specifically to you, he says, obey your parents. Is that ever hard to do? Sometimes? Sometimes? Children, obey your parents and the Lord. Why? He says, for this is right. You know, sometimes we do things just because they're the right thing to do, because God said so. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So, kids, if you don't obey your parents, you're going to die and have a terrible life. <laughs> What's what says right there? Verse four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So why does God want children to obey their parents? It's for their good. There's a promise that comes with it, that it may go well with you, that your life may be longer and better if you obey your parents. And I'm sure many of us who are adults can testify to times where our lives would have gone a lot better if we had followed the instructions of our parents. Even if your parents are non-Christians, often your parents, whether they're Christian or not, they don't want you to repeat the mistakes that they have made. Also, parents, there is an implication here. Children are to follow your leadership, and that assumes that you are giving them leadership. Kids, expect your parents to speak into your lives. Parents, Speak, speak, talk to your kids, train them, instruct them, discipline your kids, have family worship regularly, read the scriptures together, pray, sing as a family, set expectations, tell them, do this, don't do that, believe this, don't believe that. And when you give consequences or spankings, there's the S word, for your younger kids, yes, the Bible is pro-spanking. And the Bible says you may ruin your kids if you do not spank them. And when you do, let it be for sinful behaviors and attitudes. Not simply because you were inconvenienced or embarrassed. Often we have a tendency to discipline our kids more when they upset us rather than when they do something that's wrong. And sometimes I have to think about, did was that wrong? I'm really ticked right now. <laughs> but they might have just made a mistake, you know. So you got to think about that. Um, you need to care more about being a good parent than you care about people thinking that you're a good parent. Don't allow disobedience, bad attitudes, throwing fits. You you really do need, there needs to be consequences. So if your kid throws a fit because they didn't get enough ice cream, guess how much ice cream they get? Zero. You take it away. And and you you don't just spank them and then give them the ice cream. (laughs) There is a real consequence And your kid, when they misbehave, they don't get what they want. Because otherwise, you're reinforcing bad behavior. Every time, like when they throw a fit and you give them what they want, basically, you're teaching them to throw fits in the future and to have bad attitude. You're teaching them to do sinful behavior. So we don't want to do that. It's so easy to do that unconsciously as a parent. And my kids are dirty, rotten sinners. And they need a lot of instruction and discipline. Thankfully, they came with a manual. Next theme is work. Now, you may notice that Paul is going through the household relationships. Husband-wife, parent-child, master-slave. And these are the people in the New Testament household. These are the people in your neighborhood. In your household, actually. And Paul speaks to all these people, and he tells them how they should fulfill their roles to the glory of God. So Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 5, "...bondservants," or slaves, "...obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ." Keeps coming back to Jesus. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, first, let me address the elephant in the room. Yes, Paul is telling slaves to obey their masters. Is Paul pro-slavery? Well, it depends on what kind of slavery you're talking about. If we're talking about American slavery, no. He would have been very much opposed to a race-based slave trade that kidnaps free people and puts them in abominable conditions on boats across the ocean. Paul would be very much opposed to that. It was wicked. However, there are two forms of slavery mentioned in the Bible which Paul does not crusade against. There was Old Testament slavery that was sanctioned and regulated by God. And there was Roman slavery, which Paul was speaking to in his day. Now, the big idea of this slavery in in Bible times was that if you couldn't pay your debt, you were not allowed to declare bankruptcy and just skip away scot-free. No, if you could not pay your debt with your money... You had to pay your debt with yourself. You became a slave, and you had to work off your debt. There were slaves that were married. There were slaves that had families. There were slaves that owned property. And it didn't matter what color your skin was or who your daddy was. Now, slavery in the Bible is a whole lot more complicated than that. I I do actually have an entire sermon on slavery if you're interested and I think you should be interested. <laughs> Click like. <laughs> no, <I'm just> kidding. <laughs> no, but it's very helpful to understand biblical slavery because we as Americans when we read the Bible and we see the S word, we we slip up over it. And we're like, oh. <gasps> there's slavery in the Bible. And we talk to non-Christians and they say, there's slavery in the Bible. Case closed. Therefore, Christianity is false. How are you going to respond to that? You need to know how to respond to that. Therefore, you need to search for John Hansen slavery on YouTube. <laughs> so many commentators think that this passage is also helpful for employer-employee relationships. When an employer pays you to do a job, there is a sense in which he owns you. He owns your time while you're on the clock. He has paid for it. You have agreed that he will pay you a wage and you will work for him for a certain amount of time. And Paul would say, work diligently for your boss. Be on time. Work hard. Get a lot done. Don't be late coming back from breaks because that's stealing from your employer. Speak well of your boss when you're at work and when you're outside of work. And if you can't do these things, you should get another job. Why? Because you're really working for Jesus. Work as unto the Lord and think of it as if you are serving Jesus because in reality, you are. Jesus is your boss. Uh, The next theme we have is battle. Battle. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, we have a tendency to focus on the natural rather than the supernatural. You think about it, what are your problems? Oh, my problems are my—they're my finances, my kid, my marriage, my health, my job, everything outside of you. And it's so easy to forget that these are spiritual battles that we are facing. And you must face spiritual battles with spiritual armor, spiritual weapons like salvation, righteousness, truth, faith the Holy Spirit, and gospel peace. And one of the most important weapons for this battle is prayer. Paul says, beginning in verse 618, keep praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So yes, pray for your needs. Pray for others' needs. Pray for the sick, financial struggles, etc. But don't forget to pray for gospel-proclaiming boldness. Pray that the next time you have the opportunity to share the gospel, you won't chicken out. Also pray so that others can boldly share the gospel with others around the world. Pray for our food bank ministry and our COVID-19 testing that they would lead to opportunities for us to share the gospel. David Paulson says about the book of Ephesians, master it. Be mastered by it. Work Ephesians into your thinking, your living, your prayers, your conversation, your practice. The Bible is vast and deep, and human life is diverse and perplexing. But in a pinch, you could do all counseling from Ephesians. Let's pray. Why don't you stand and let's pray together. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, We pray that you would bless this study through the book of Ephesians. We pray that you would show us your glory. Remind us of our inheritance that we have in Christ and all the blessings that come with us. Lord, let rich theology fill our minds and our hearts with joy. Let it transform our lives that we might more and more come to reflect the character of Jesus Christ himself. Help us to reflect Christ in our worship, our marriages, our work, our ministry. Lord, what a glorious gospel we have. And you are a wonderful heavenly father. Amen. As we go through this book, I want you to consider what is God's heart for you? What is God trying to say to you specifically through the book of Ephesians? And I've summarized it in this letter from God. Have you ever wondered if God wrote you a letter, what would it say? What would God say to you? Because I think it would be something like the book of Ephesians. So I want you to hear this as God speaking directly to your heart. Also consider that it's a summary of the entire book. My dear child, my desire for you is that you experience my grace and peace. For your blessing and for my glory, I have chosen you. I have adopted you into my family and showered you with all the riches of heaven. I want you to experience my fullness. I have broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile to make my family one. When you were dead in your sin, I breathed life into you. I claimed you for myself. I have begun a work in you that I will complete. I'm working on you as an individual, and I'm working on you as a body of believers. The work I am doing in you will be strengthened as you meditate on my glorious Son. And as you remember his death for you, it will affect the way you relate to those in your household as wife, as husband, as child. Parents, I have entrusted you with little souls. Teach, train, love, discipline your children that they may bring you joy and that they may bring me glory. Employers, lead well. Employees serve well. You bear my name. My glory is at stake when you go to work. Let your lives be a great display of the power of the gospel. As I close my letter to you, please understand that the battles you are facing are spiritual battles. You have such a tendency to focus on what you can see and touch that you so often forget that your struggle is not against flesh and blood. I have given you armor, armor that is fit for the fight. I love you. And that's why I chose you to be my daughter, to be my son. Signed, Your Heavenly Father.